If you've already seen RAN, it was probably in one of two contexts. Either you saw it as part of a film studies class, or you rented it because samurai. Either way, you are a nightmare. You film studies dorks are sitting way forward in your papasans right now, preloaded to drop science about what Apocalypse Now was to Heart of Darkness, so Ran is to King Lear. Feel like this is your chance to reference Noah Theater, which you don't actually know anything about, and talk about it in the context of Kurosawa's oeuvre, which even at the most interminable Phi Beta Kappa mixer is going to make genuinely interesting people do the electric slide away from you in the direction of almost anyone else including those people in the corner talking about Engel's contribution to theories of surplus value. No reasonable person, including your spouse and or the people you have imprisoned in your basement who have every reason to appear to be listening to you, are going to care about your theory of how the Sengoku era is an apt setting to explore the nihilism of post-war Japan. Listen to yourself. Can you tell how exasperating you are? You sound like you belong on this podcast, which is not a compliment. Meanwhile, if you rented this movie because Samurai, I don't think it needs to be explained to you why you are a problem. I can only imagine you sitting there in front of your parents' Sylvania, jaw slackening as buckets of blood splatter across the screen, your hand-me-down micronauts slipping through your fingers as you gawk at the spectacle and wonder if you should laugh or cry. You went on to see this movie seven times, didn't you? This and Akira are the two movies you can mention to normals without sounding like a weeaboo, and you use it to weed out all the people who will never understand your rich fantasy life. But you don't know any normals, do you? You're talking to your waifu pillow, aren't you? Pretending you're on a date. Well, for the rest of you who haven't seen Ran, welcome to the big show. For you, it's perfectly acceptable to start referencing Ran at work and at cocktail parties because you watched it to keep up with your favorite podcast, which marks you as a socially engaged and definitely cool person who has interesting things to say about Sengoku Japan, which was roughly the era between 1467 and 1600. Let's go over your talking points. A feudal lord and patriarch, Ichimonji, has grown so old that his kabuki makeup has started to gum up his wrinkles. He's ready to step down. Two of his sons, Taro and Jiro, are obsequious, grasping, and dumb, but his third son, Saburo, exhibits the more honorable traits of petulance and ingratitude. Ichimonji himself is grandiose, violent, and full of self-regard, so right away we think, man, this seems like a fun picnic. Why doesn't my family ever get together like this? Ichimonji wants to retire in peace but is concerned about his legacy the way wealthy men who don't have the class to endow a center for digital arts often are. He believes he can, through sheer force of will, both transfer power to his sons and obligate them to adhere to his vision. Fortunately, he has three castles to bequeath, but no one is happy with this plan and the fun family outing ends in a hail of busted picnic baskets and the banishment of Saburo. Taro is the oldest, the main benefactor of his father's wealth and power, and the film follows his exploits at first. His brothers are jealous that he got the best castle in the will, as you do, but Ichimonji immediately moves in. He whimsically shoots arrows at Taro's guards and just generally behaves like Dudley Moore in Arthur if Dudley Moore wore a Joker mask and kept murdering people. The gift of the castle was kind of like when my dad would hand me an envelope on Christmas morning with a certificate inside, good for more quality time with dad. Like, dads excel at that kind of epic level trolling. Well, the visit is even more awkward because Ichimonji long ago killed Lady Kade's entire family, right over there by that dark spot in the wood floor. So Lady Kade has an axe to grind. But she professes her allegiance to Taro, so how dangerous can she be? Well, the answer is the maximum amount of dangerous. 
Kade is basically the most dangerous character we've ever seen in a war film. Do you like movies with a strong female lead? How about movies where the strong female lead kills everyone else in the movie? Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. That doesn't happen until later. Was I supposed to say spoiler alert at the beginning? Sorry, I was too busy making fun of weeaboos. Anyway, Lady Kade drives Ichimonji bananas, literally, and he goes Goldilocksing up to Jiro's castle before Taro, under Lady Kade's manipulation, makes it a crime to give him aid. Taro and Jiro combine forces to attack Ichimonji in Saburo's castle, and it is an utter bloodbath. Taro is killed, field promoting Jiro into family leadership, and somehow Ichimonji walks away from the burning castle like an action movie star with an exploding airplane hanger behind him. What mean expendable, Ichimonji? It turns out back when Ichimonji was in his prime, he didn't lead through charisma and sound fiscal policy. If you didn't die under his army's blades, you were blinded and left in a cabin to rot, so he has a few blinded, rotten, and resentful enemies left around. But Lady Kade is not dissuaded by her husband's death and seduces Jiro into having his own wife killed. This seems unlikely, but I dated a woman like this in the 90s. In the end, with the family destroyed and her revenge exacted in a horrifying bloodbath, Lady Kade gives a bad guy monologue where she confesses her noble justification to the shell-shocked survivors before making her own blood-stained splotch on the castle wall. Everyone is like, whoa, okay, I kind of see that, but she's dead. Basically, the only people who survive this story are the minions, who eulogize their masters but get none of the inheritance for their loyalty. Once you wring out the bloody mop into the bucket at this story's conclusion, you realize that this is a family movie, but from a time when rich people in power killed each other in orgies of vengeance. Take a note, rich people of now. On today's Friendly Fire, words don't win wars, as we discuss the 1985 Akira Kurosawa masterpiece, Ran. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast where one host wears yellow, one host wears red, and one host wears blue 100% of the time. I'm your red host, Ben Harrison. I'm your blue host, Adam Pranica. And I'm your black host, John Roderick. <laughs> oh, you're one of the other noblemen? Yes, I am. I'm the one up, up, on, the up on the hillside. You don't see me until the very end of the film. You're always introducing yourself on podcasts with that same line, John. This is the only time it actually hasn't been edited out. <laughs> this is a this is a very long movie. It's among the more awesome movies we've watched, I would say. You're just gonna jump right in, huh? With the with the rating. One of the more awesome. Do you mean awesome like great or awesome like awesome? It's jaw dropping. Like it, it's also great. There's so many set pieces, so many just totally amazing shots. Like I mean, Kurosawa is a total master of shot composition and this is you know the most money he ever had to spend on a movie this is his master class you know he's a master of composition but he will get that depth of field out of here get it out of here he everything is in focus in a in a kurosawa film you see uh, you see foreground to the mountains in in the background what 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 are his what are his lenses that are enabling him to do this type of thing he is shooting from very far away using very long lenses. I think that's 
most of what he does. And he shoots with four cameras at once. So he's intercutting uh, on the same take. So Ben, you, as you uh, just pointed out, this was the most money Kurosawa ever had to spend. But we should clarify that that amount is $11 million, which is less right. than Miley Cyrus spent on like the last two videos she made. Mongol cost $11 million too, right? Did it? Yeah. But in... 1985 money, though. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not $11 million today. Sure. But it's also a movie that took years and years to make. Like, it took two years just to make the costumes for the big battle sequences because they handmade, like, 1,400 sets of armor. They ran out of blue. <laughs> All of this, like, I was thinking about this watching this this film. Like, the two years that they spent making costumes for it really shows up in the movie and the fact that they are often probably using 500 extras and that they had to have built at least one maybe four different complete temples to burn yeah they really built real real temple sized buildings no miniatures of any kind in this movie and no cgi no special effects but like for the 11 million dollars that he spent you see every dollar you see every dollar times a thousand and yeah. it, it doesn't give it gives the sense, I guess, that the money that we spend on movies now that we dedicate to CGI, uh, you wonder whether or not the expense of creating an army of 500 people in CGI couldn't wh- whether that money couldn't just go to pay for 500 extras. I mean, I, I, I wonder whether we have whether the cost effectiveness of special effects is one of those false economies the news out of the special effects industry is that they really mistreat their workers and a lot of uh, a lot of those special effects companies have a really hard time breaking even because they you know they don't earn any points on movies so they don't you know it's it's entirely a an arrangement they make with the studios we will make this shot for this amount of money and then you know they have a really hard time asking for more when there's overruns so or when the movie's like hit. yeah like the um yeah there's no points for the special effects guys right the special effects artists community is uh pretty badly under fire and uh a lot of those jobs like get shipped overseas like i just saw uh a movie with the rock in it and there was one special effects house that like I swear to God, like 300 names went by on the screen and they were all, uh, you know, you could tell by the names that they, these were foreign workers somewhere overseas making these special effects shots. And I was like, you could just pay those 300 people to be the army in your movie and have something more impressive. There are shots in this film that are among the most impressive shots I've ever seen anywhere. And like you were saying, it's not just like, it's not just the epic nature of putting that many people in front of a burning building, but, but the composition of it where the camera is panning and, and capturing things in the background, in the foreground, you know, it's like clearly you have one take to get this right. Incredible commitment. And it's not just one expensive element. It's not just a bunch of people wearing those costumes and it's not just a temple on fire. 
it is the combination of Temple on Fire, 500 people in costumes, and an old man having to do the walk out of the temple in a single take before the temple burns down, because you only get one shot at it. Right, and the weather is, yeah. is, is playing a role in the shot, and I mean, there's like... There's a cat that's been trained to walk on a ball. <laughs> There's a bear riding a tricycle. <laughs> let's let's start at the start. I mean the, sure. o- the opening the opening shots of this film really established for me. I'd never seen it before. The opening shots just really established what an unusual experience we were about to undertake. Just just a gorgeous and patient opening roped me in from the very first scene. The variety of Japanese geography shown throughout the film is really breathtaking. People are always having conversations on the tops of hills or at that's, the bottom that's of valleys. Very, that's key, key in Japan. You never talk to anybody in between a hill or a valley. You wait. No, if you want to talk to me, we're going to take a walk. Yeah, and it's going to be a while. Wait till we get to the top. Save it. The uh, I love their like their picnic uh, enclosure. <laughs> this is right. if if I could uh, if I was a wealthy man, this is how I would picnic. I would go to the park and then I would set up barriers so nobody could come in and disrupt my picnic. I don't want any frisbees landing on my on my blanket. This is the scene where it's established what this film is actually about. It's about succession, mm-hmm. and the old man is there having a picnic with his boys. And he's like, I've made a decision. This may come as a surprise because no one does this. But all my stuff's going to my eldest son. And the rest of you are going to get the lesser castles. What do you think of that? And not even the oldest son is cool with this. It was very convenient that he conquered three castles. You know, he didn't. He should He should have maybe not burned down that fourth one. Kept that for himself or something. But uh, yeah, the three. He was talking about the three best castles. I bet he had 50 castles. These are like top three castles. (laughs) (laughs) The patriarch's name is uh, Hitadora. His eldest son is Taro. The middle son is Jiro. And the youngest is Saburo. Saburo stuck out to me as being like the real insolent shit of the three brothers. Yeah. He's he's the talkbacker. Saburo was a brat. And at the start of the movie, you're hoping, oh, we're going to get a lot of Saburo in this movie. Right. Because he's got all this attitude and the other two are are suck-ups. But then Saburo gets banished and two full hours of the film go by before we even even catch a glimpse of Saburo again. Yeah. He's always a factor in everybody's planning and thinking. Right. But he's, he's not on screen for the whole... You know, if this is a uh, quintuple stuff Oreo, he's just the cookie. He's the Cordelia. (laughs) For as much of the conflict that is between uh, the three brothers and the father, a lot of that is expressed via go-betweens. All of these brothers have lords and keepers, and they're counselors to them, and also go-betweens among the brothers themselves. So there's a lot of, like, indirect conversation happening and and backbiting and threats that are going on between them that occur while they're not occupying the same space and it's i think that's particular it's particularly because both of the the two older brothers are weak and that's the that's the key to the to the puzzle of the film or the problem of the story right you've got your you, you give all the power to your eldest son but your eldest son has no will 
And then your second son is a schemer, but also pretty easily bent uh, by the wind. The lords are so much more interesting than the brothers. And in every respect, I thought. Often true. Yeah. Did you think that the eldest son speaking to his father and saying, like, I wish you would live a hundred years and stay in charge, even if it cost my own life, was that disingenuous or was that him honestly expressing that he didn't feel equal to the task of being a ruler? My sense was that Hidetora had been a, a complete autocrat. And then they, they talk about that in that moment. I think Jiro says, you've never expressed once any confidence in us. All you've asked for is obedience our whole lives. And so here he was just, he, it didn't appear to them that he had actually been grooming them to take over. He had just right. been living his best life full of murder and concubines and all he wanted out of his sons was just you know like follow along and uh do what i say and then all of a sudden he springs this on them at this picnic like oh now you're the ruler but i'm actually keeping all of the like he does that pretty nasty trick i give you i give you all the power except i reserve for myself my title the, our family colors and you know and the right to just the 30 top samurai 30 top samurai and the right to come and go as i please and also i'm i'm taking the tower to live in uh in the best castle so like i'm not going to be out of sight out of mind right i i saw i uh saw a reviewer refer to what he wants to be is warlord emeritus yeah yeah i mean that's all <laughs> i, I really want to be <laughs> but taro just isn't like maybe if the 20 years prior the three brothers had understood that this was the plan the succession plan that they would have in any way been prepared for this moment but they were right. they were just tossed into it and none of them you know they weren't even considered first among the lords prior to this moment and it's why every why everyone reacted the way they did Hidatora makes the case that like this everything is going to go great because if with the, when the brothers are unified, they're like three arrows and you can't possibly break them. And this is going to be a great succession plan. I have willed it because I am smart and I have conquered all these other things. Of course, this is going to work out the way I've conceived it. But this becomes more of a domestic dispute than a war film at this point. Well, I think this is this is an edge case as much as any other war movie edge cases we've had. Hidatora... It sounds like a person with borderline personality disorder because that's exactly that's exactly the kind of like I have willed it. Yeah. Uh, and this conversation goes so poorly that it basically shuts down at the end of it. Well, and he yeah, he banishes his youngest and favoritest son. Yeah. Reveals that he loves that son more than the other two right in front of their faces uh, as yeah. he kicks him out of the family. Like maybe maybe go back, maybe start again tomorrow. Maybe say like do over, do over. It's a great Tango moment, too, because Tango is Saboro's guy, and Tango gets himself booted out also in solidarity. Well, I think Tango was, was Itatora's guy, but was kind of seeing the, the truth of what Saboro was saying yeah. and kind of winds up, winds up tossed in with him. Like, I think he, in that moment, becomes Saboro's guy because no other guy to be. But even then he isn't because Saboro says, come with me. And he says, no, I'm always, I'll always be loyal to your father. And now I am a, a samurai with no, with no ruler. And there's a word for that. Hmm. What is that word, John? Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> a samurai with no Lord. 
still loyal to Did his. John Roderick leave and John Frankenheimer is hey, here. Hey, it's me. <laughs> Hedatora does that super cruel thing about like the only reason you're such a fuck up is because I loved you too much. Yeah. Like I made you weak because I was too nice of a father. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that burns. So borderline. <laughs> Hedatora's like kabuki makeup. It's a major character in the film. No one else is wearing this like super exaggerated kind of traditional Japanese face paint. I mean, I I, I often get, I think like a lot of gringos, I get kabuki and uh, I think you're looking for no, 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 John, no, Uh, I get the two styles. I conflate them, but the, but the makeup, style is yeah Hidatora is adorned Hidatora is not yeah he's adorned and he's also the way he's performing the role he's like I mean it's a two and a half hour long death scene he is like super dramatically over playing his emotion his state of like King Lear madness yeah you get like you get like film acting from most of them but the main character is doing stage acting right right really really big broad stage acting and it and it creates a kind of supernatural feeling to like the the center of the movie a little bit where you've got yeah the rest of it is just sort of a swords and swords epic picture but he but Hidetora is in the center making it a swords and sorcery play one of the lighter moments in a fairly dark film happens right after this scene, after Saburo gets banished. He gets chased down by uh, by Nobuhiro, who's like, hey, man, I saw what happened back there. Pretty fucked up. You're my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and like, they have a good laugh over the idea of, like, well, not going to be marrying anyone's daughter in the short term after that. Kind of a heavy blow. And like they have a total like Rickles moment in the middle of this thing yeah. that was great. <laughs> well, he says like, do you want to, you know, like, what do you say? Come back, marry my daughter. Yeah. And and, uh, and uh, Saburo is like, well, I don't know. I haven't seen her yet. And they're like, wah, wah, wah. I feel like there's only two laughs in the entire film. It's this one and Lady Cade's crazy laugh that happens later on towards the end. Those are the only like moments that are punctuated with that sound the rest is just people yelling at each other yeah people pretty angry i mean except for the character of kyomi uh the fool right yeah who at the beginning of the movie has a couple of scenes where um where everyone is laughing at the antics right but then that character becomes like the most dramatic kind of uh greek chorus throughout the film like she's as hysterical as anyone in the movie kiyoami's freedom to be the way that kiyoami is i thought was incredible like making fun of uh hidatora to his face and to to everyone and to everyone and to just be like at most smacked with a reed i mean that's a that's (laughs) a classic real freedom that's a classic shakespearean yeah agent right yeah the fool character the the gesture the idea that this movie is a is like derived heavily from king lear yes it just as apocalypse now it's it's very similar to the way apocalypse now is taken from heart of darkness it's there's a lot of lear in it and a lot of lear not in it surf boys the kiyoami of apocalypse (laughs) now (laughs) 
Well, I had a hard time finding a, a pedantic quibble about this film, but one thing I did find is uh, that uh, unlike most other characters in the film, the character of the fool has no basis in historic Japan. The most similar position would be related to a historic Japanese warlord would be a page, but they would have quite different responsibilities. Rather, Kiyoami is based on the fool or jester of European medieval times and, of course, William Shakespeare's character of the fool from King Lear. Well, I, well and I think what made this film super interesting and that character super interesting to me was that I feel like... He, he got around that the fact that there was no equivalent in Japanese culture by having a uh, Kiyoami be a uh, transgender. Like at the center of this movie, there is a character that completely breaks all the rules right in front of everybody. And yeah. yet is somehow immune because of her st- status as the beloved and she I mean she uses her she uses the pronoun he to describe herself throughout the film but like it's it's very clearly and and, and I'm I wonder whether even that isn't a translation issue but the but the actor that plays the role is a famous sort of Japanese uh like transgender musician and and film star and it's clearly wow. it's clearly the a role of a like someone who is who is breaking not just the social convention of of speaking truth to the king but breaking a lot of like is outside of a lot of what what samurai culture would typically allow and i so so the fact that there is no fool in in medieval Jap- japanese culture like there would be in european culture i wonder whether there wasn't room made whether this character isn't transgender because there was room made for, you know, uh, for a, a person like that in feudal culture. Hmm. But that, you know, throughout the film, like the, all that kind of, all the questions of like, it, what is this character's role in the, in the culture? It's just, I, I couldn't stop. I fell in love with her actually. I, uh, would really like to release a line of shirts based on the various patterns in uh, Kiwami's garments. Oh, Just, sure, uh, the cranes re- and the... Really admired all the color and uh, patterns and stuff. Dragonflies. Yeah. Like, uh, wouldn't wouldn't dragonfly t-shirt just be like a great look for summer? Maybe that's a friendly fire shirt. Maybe. Just dragonfly in the center, friendly fire. You know what that's about. Come on, everybody. You get the reference to Ram. You listen to the show. Just a dragonfly on top of a pork chop. (laughs) Kiyoami also speaks with a very philosophical vernacular. Like, she's really painting vivid pictures of her circumstances at Hidadora. Like, that uh, that egg metaphor, specifically, I thought was, was incredible. And for as tortured as as Kiyoami is throughout the film, like she really holds it together. She holds it together being around a crazy person enough to, to make these pronouncements to him and to no one else. Well, and I don't want to establish at least within the context of this show that we're using, that we're describing her as a she, right? Because, because Kiyoami, the character uses the, the male pronoun to describe 
himself i guess yeah but uh but you know i just couldn't help but think of her as a trans role yeah and so yeah i watched this movie with my wife and we uh both had a very similar reaction where uh she my wife thought kiwami was a girl the entire time and then i don't know some something revealed itself you know it's some line of dialogue where the word he came in and where she was like, what? <laughs> so the, the actor, uh, is named Peter, a single, single named Japanese actor and pop star. Who's like f- super famous in Japan, uh, and is known as a sort of like, I guess like a trans pioneer there hmm. and still, and still has a, still has a career, still a very, still a very beautiful actor. I'm seeing, uh, credits very recently. So Hidetora moves in with Taro, and uh, it doesn't go great. Yeah, he does the uh, the like uh, in law apartment thing where you've got the main house, and then there's like an outbuilding. The one thing you can't do from the in law apartment is start shooting arrows at people. <laughs> That's not going to go great. He's yeah. a crack shot from the bell tower, though. Well, sure, he's the one that killed the the boar, and that. that yeah, it's established that he is very good at bow and arrow. He is. But that's the that's where we are introduced to Lady Kade, who is a central figure in the film and ultimately like perhaps the most successful war wager in the film. Yeah. She accomplishes we don't see this until the very end, but she accomplishes a, a, she's playing a very long game. You talk about power behind the power. That is her. Well, and also like lifelong resentment because there are a lot of people in this movie there's se- several characters right sue and her brother like many many people who have uh who have suffered at the hands of hitatora if real grievances and yeah real grievances like you plucked out my eyes or yeah, you, you killed- burned down my castle <laughs> yeah we're li- I, you know i'm being forced to live as the wife of the son of the man who killed my entire family right here in this very room yeah like that like scene where mom she- killed herself uh just 10 feet away from yeah, us right there and 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 the way they deal with it like sue you can still see the sane in the uh in the hardwood <laughs> <laughs> I scrub and scrub. If only my mom had put down a coaster before she killed herself. <laughs> but Sue, uh, you know, turns to religion. Her brother becomes a hermit. But Lady Kade, uh, and how are you pronouncing that name? I said Cade. I was Cade. wrong. Is it? Well, it I could be Cade. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably something like that. Uh, we're, we apologize to, uh, to everybody for how badly we are pronouncing all these names. Well, it's funny because watching a movie with subtitles, I was always searching for for the way that words were pronounced right because you would see it go by and you'd be like oh i really you know i really want to hear it i hear here because i can see it and now i can connect the sound to the word and so often i'm just like i have no idea like it would seem like a name like saburo i would be able to pick it out Right, there were definitely times where they where Saburo was in the subtitles, but it didn't sound like anybody said it, which made me think maybe they're using a pronoun or something, and in the translation they put his proper name. Who knows? It's, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's that's a that's a tricky game to play. Uh, follow the bouncing ball of a subtitle. <laughs> but yeah, so Lady Kade. Uh, spends the entire film just like pitting the brothers against each other and for a long time seems like she is 
just a just a just a villain with no plan just a crazy person you get a sense of her power right away in that first scene because she's the one sitting with taro when they make uh hidatora sign the contract they're like that thing that happened in the park is fine and everything but we actually need something signed in blood and this contract is pretty onerous it's like it's basically states everything that was stated at the picnic but in in some stronger terms and hidatora is initially totally pissed off by this before his lord reminds him like yeah i was there when you when you described this circumstance like this is pretty much what you said and uh and gets him to thumbprint and blood and that's it but this scene really cements lady kade's power because she's running the show sitting right next to taro yeah running it through a combination of force of will but also an unclear a power of mesmerization like it seems like both these brothers are once they're in her grip they're they're powerless to resist her she really does some strange things with an eyebrow pencil Oof. i think that that kind of that empowers her in a way it never it, i never got used to it the yeah. eyebrow and the like <laughs> yeah. up up by the hairline yeah i was i was reading a little on um wikipedia about that it's uh originated in China and was adapted by the Japanese. And then there's some thought that part of the idea of it is that it kind of obscures your emotions from who you're talking to, which was very important for upper class, uh, you know, nobility in Japan, like the, like revealing too much emotion had, had consequences. So you uh, sort of Botoxes your head. If you can draw those eyebrows up there. Yeah. Yeah, wow. well, f- fortunately, in a, in our culture, revealing too much emotion is never a bad thing. <laughs> and I don't have uh, eyebrows. It's that radical sincerity that's so au courant <laughs> right now. <laughs> it often coincided with dyeing the teeth black, which uh, did not get in Oh, no. That'll obscure yeah. your emotions. Seriously. Make me want to barf. <laughs> I mean, a lot, a lot of the a lot of the time, I, uh, watching costume dramas like this, you wonder, in because like European costuming is familiar to our eye, but also it's not hard to see it as ridiculous. You know, like Elizabethan <laughs> garb. You look at it and you're just like, come on, this is like. Uh, in a lot of ways, it seems like the costumes were, the costumes expressed nobility by virtue of making it impossible for you to do any work at all. Ben, right. uh, along the same subject, I'm looking at a pair of pants that John has has slunk across a chair that are uh, <laughs> green, white, and yellow plaid. Yeah. John uh-huh. himself is in a Hawaiian shirt. What's your point? <laughs> I think I've seen John in a in a green, white, and yellow tuxedo before. Th- are those your tuxedo pants, John? You know, so people what it, in the past had ridiculous costumes. What is sartorially ridiculous <laughs> to one person might be uh, totally normal to another one is what I'm trying to say. Listen, you earth tone people cannot and I'm not I'm not including you in this Ben because I know that you have a you have flair. Yeah, Ben I have a gives few a tones shit. aside from earth. Yeah, Adam just picks his his colors, you know, based on the the clay tones of the dirt around his because house. Because I want to fit in. I thought that uh, Adam just let his wife take him to the store and pick everything out for him. Yeah, uh, if I'm good. Well, she takes him to the store and he gets to pick which animal his clo- his matchy clothes are going to coordinate with. <laughs> Do you want to wear the tiger clothes today? Or the elephant clothes? 
Oh, I rarely get to be the tiger, John. <laughs> See our Casper read for more information. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that they're sh- shaving that male pattern baldness into their heads as kind of like a like an equalization measure? Like it, everybody is bald, some by some by choice, some by genetics. No, it's like the top knot of of the samurai, right? That first 25 minutes, they all have a hat on that's covering the fact that they all have bald pates. And then, like, the next time you see every single character, you're like, wait, have we seen this guy before? Well, yeah, when Jiro first shows up without without his hat on, I was like, is he wearing Klingon forehead makeup? Like his It looks so big. Head is so big. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... That That's, a, that's another thing that... I mean, you know, Elizabethan women shaved their hairline back uh it was considered attractive to have your hairline be back sort of just a just a half moon parallel to your ears you gotta make room for those eyebrows yeah gotta put put that (laughs) get that big bulbous forehead that we find so attractive oh yeah that beluga look i love that look so i don't know i mean i don't i don't know what the 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 shaved head and then the ponytail that's curved back like a scorpion tail. Yeah. It's a very distinctive look. It's uh it's very composed and thoughtful uh in direct contrast to uh Hidetora's total bedragglement once he goes crazy. Like not only is his face makeup more pronounced, but his hair is completely ratted out. I want to know how he got his eyes so red. Yeah. So like puffy red and yellow. It must have been really painful. Yeah. But but from the very beginning of the movie and throughout the movie, one of the things that appealed to me as a viewer and and particularly as somebody who's doing a war movie podcast is being inside of a culture like this, which is war-based throughout. Like everything about the relationships between the men is like contextualized within the fact that this is extremely militaristic culture. And so the precision, the way they sit astride their horses, like their posture, the way they turn their heads, the way they are extremely courtly with one another, all of that stuff. The way like they get up from bed and like the first thing they do is get their sword on. Like, right. All, all of that was, was very um even though even though the battle scenes in this movie were kind of confined to just a few a few points it felt like you were in um in a war movie the entire time and i really loved the 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 courtliness the precision in their clothes the way that they the way that rank was always present you know where everybody stands on screen most of the time and i think the the most upsetting like thing for the characters is that first scene where he sort of reshuffles the deck and announces a new set of standings. Like no, nobody can cope with it. It's like, that's not how this has been established. Right. Right. And the expectation is that he will rule until he dies. Then, you know, come what may, but the fact that there's often a scene where someone will be bowing to leave the room and then someone else enters the room and they realize they can't leave. So they like, taken they take a deeper knee like yeah. there's all this taking a knee that's happening because those moments where people are kind of insolent when there's some back sass 
particularly that was coming from um, Kuragane, who was like the the person that could speak truth to Jiro. Jiro's like number one guy that that kept saying like you're being a bad general. Right. Um, <laughs> this is not. This is all of the things that you're deciding are bad decisions. From the from the beginning of the movie, he was one of the the people that at at, at the start was like what say who now. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed kind of being in that environment for two hours and forty five minutes. It's strange <laughs> that the sons would have the intelligence to surround themselves with with good counselors and smart counselors, but never take their advice. That that's one thing in the establishing scenes that we don't quite understand is how much those those uh, counselors and generals were already attached to those sons. Yeah. Or how much they were divided up, whether they were all in service of their father and then were divided up as the castles. Uh, we don't get that because this was what was so confusing um, about Tango was that it, by all appearances, Tango was uh, Saburo's guy. But in fact, he retained his allegiance to Hidatora. And, but where did these other generals come from and how were they allied? Right. That, that little bit was kind of left... Uh, either to our imagination or, or to our lack of cultural understanding. The first big battle set piece is like, I don't know, maybe like a third of the way or something into the movie. And it's, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. Like it, it's, uh, he, he wakes up and like looks out the window and his castle is being stormed, a castle that he thought he was safe in. And, uh, his older two sons are like, have teamed up Red Army and Yellow Army to uh, to storm the the castle. I guess the the premise is that the thirty men that he travels with are the ones providing one hundred percent of the resistance. Yeah, and someone gives a figure that one of those warriors is is equivalent in value to a thousand of the attacking warriors. Which seems a little bit of an exaggeration. It seems like it, but also you do see piles and piles of corpses in this scene. Like, it's, is this it's the very... battle scene that's score only that that takes out the sound of the battle? Is this? Yeah, there's lots of uh, lots of parts of it where it's it is literally just shots of men running running down hills and horses in the foreground, and it's you just hear music. You don't hear clanging steel. You don't hear you know, trampling horse hoofs. You don't hear people yelling. It's, it's really, I really like that. Did you? I really did. I did. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it says something very different about, uh, a battle. I think when you, when you present it that way, if you were to pitch that idea, I feel like reflexively, I would think it was a manipulation. It would get me to feel like the actions were more valorious than they actually are, but there is nothing cheesy about this technique. It is, it is just as strong of a battle scene as as any other that we've seen. It doesn't feel like a cheat. No, I said valorous. I meant valorous, right? I guess Probably? so. Yeah. Okay. Valorous. Okay. Let's go with valorous. All right. Valorious is a kind of. That was my first girlfriend. That's a kind of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a uh, a stretchy fabric, hmm. a little hey, bit like velvet. You'd want to take that out before putting it in the dryer. Yeah, yeah, that's going to shrink. <laughs> I didn't realize there were going to be guns in this movie until this scene. 
Well, so so the battle scenes throughout the movie are are really interestingly they're composed in a really interesting way, which is which is that once the, we get into the heat of battle, there's a very stylized way that combat is performed. Uh, we we get into very repetitious kind of formats where, like they're storm they're trying to storm the tower, and you'll and we cut to that the sort of trap door in the floor where. 10 helmets pop up and fire their blunderbusses and and the score kind of goes and then the, a bunch of burning arrows from the left come and then a bunch of burning arrows from the right come and it's done it's very choreographed and not super naturalistic um it seems more like a like a balletic almost yeah. but it, but but somehow it really communicates combat in a in a very effective way like you don't you do, I did not feel even as as Hidetoro was sitting there in his uh in like his bafflement as the tower burns around him as he's as his men are making their last stand and it's and it's being done in this almost nutcracker way but you felt you felt the danger you felt the you felt the blood and the and the combat and it was and and then it happens throughout and then in the final battle particularly in like the lost cause charges of Jiro's cavalry into this you know this um, wall of musket fire uh, it's done just over and over you never ever see anyone reload a gun you never ever see anyone even even um, it's volley fire they're using, but you never right, see yeah. you never see one volley advance. It's always it's always just this sort of static shot of fire, fire. Yeah, it's fire. like all three rows in the volley fire are firing at the same time, but they're always firing. And yeah, always firing. Right, firing almost at a, at a at a level of like um, you know semi-automatic rifles, but it's still very effective because it it feels like a it feels like an opera rather than like the like the like they're attempting to make this look like a real battle yeah i think it's the like it's he uses jump cuts kurosawa uses jump cuts so effectively in this movie and you know jump cuts can can really pull you out of something and i think that he establishes them really early on with the pigs running by he's jump cutting on on those like wild boars that they're hunting running around in the in the grass and it establishes there are going to be some jumpy cuts in this movie, so get get ready for it. And then when it shows guys firing their muskets and it jump cuts on on that, it you 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 know you have a little bit of a a language for it. You can understand it to be yeah, it teaches you. It's pretty cool. In addition to the the volume of the firearm artillery. Uh, the arrow work in this film is also very unique, I think, because it's not just a single arrow going through it, the porthole of a castle tower. It's like 40 arrows in a bunch, <laughs> as if someone on the other side has been throwing them through. The volume of them going through the air was impressive, and the sound of them, the sound work in this film, I thought, was top-notch, too. That was, a, that was really terrifying, the sound of those hundreds of arrows flying through the air. Yeah, the the accomplishment of 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 filming something so stylized, where you also 
you appreciate the beauty. I mean, all there were so many moments in watching this movie where I was like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? How would you <laughs> capture this? Yeah. How could you possibly have captured all of that in a single shot? How do you get the shot of him sitting there with the armor and the flaming arrows flying in behind him and you're not like putting your actor's life in danger to do it? Kurosawa spent years storyboarding every single shot in this film. And I wonder, I mean, his reputation is one of of this sort of perfectionism that alienated him from a lot of his contemporaries. Right. And I wonder if showing up... I feel the pre- same way about myself and my commitment to good <laughs> podcasting. I also feel that way about you. Yeah. But to show up to pre-production with this binder full of storyboards and, and to be the guy that says, this is exactly how we're doing this, I think is how you get a product like this. Because if you were to just like make a shooting schedule that was loosely formed around these ideas without their specifics, I don't think you get the beauty and the the specifics in these compositions that you get in this film. No, you couldn't. The 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 shot right before the one you were just describing uh, of of uh, the burning tower, um, the death of his concubines, where the right. you know the the rifle corps kind of storms in and and the the women are all kind of in motion, headed as a group but somewhat in different directions, and they get and they it, it's almost by coincidence that they just happen to be right in front of Hidadora as they're fired upon and they all catch a bullet and every one of them dies in her own way. Yeah. And, and it's like the shot is simultaneously a massacre, but also like this beautiful ballet and Hidatora comes out unscathed, but you also register on his face. What's just happened that all these people just were sacrificed and, and not, they didn't, it didn't seem like they put him, put themselves in front of the bullets right, to save him. Right, they were secret, secret service agents. Yeah, no, they were just, bullets. they were also just all moving in their way and it just so happened that Well, the fire person... alarm had gone off and they were proceeding to the uh, emergency exits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there was so much beautiful death in that scene. Um, yeah. Where the, the two women who uh, suicided one another, you know, they were together and each had a knife on uh on the other and they you know looked each other in the eye and like simultaneously stabbed one another yeah heavy heavy stuff one after another like the these two or three second shots that were just like whoa you see a commensurate amount of death in this film as any other war film but i think uh, the reaction to that death in this film is another unique aspect of it because hitadora really feels it every time and you see a lot of war films and and it's just the quantity of people dying makes it a circumstance that that stops you from feeling any individual death but it really feels like he's able to feel a lot for all of these people dying around him which he's wearing I, it which i think is a factor of i mean he's obviously killed tens of thousands of people in his career he's famous for it but this whole film is happening after he made his big opening speech about how now he wants to live in peace. Yeah. Has, he wants to put his sword down and hand over power to his peaceful sons and live out his life just bouncing his grandkids on his knee. He's getting too old for this shit. Yeah. And then he watches as every single person he knows is massacred. I did know. hear Danny Glover was originally cast in this role, but then, you know, just it wasn't available. They when couldn't they got get their Ray Liotta to back him up. 
this this scene ends with a pretty amazing sequence where he, uh, for all appearances, desperate to commit ritual suicide, but cannot find a blade for himself, and so he just kind of, in a daze, stumbles out of the castle, and the soldiers like kind of part, and and he just walks out. Yeah, this is my favorite shot in the film. And the like lava sand that they built that on yeah. being like so dark as the, you know, the, the palette of the shot is, is stunning. It's just bright red, bright yellow, black, and then his white kimono with the red accents as he stumbles through this crowd. Everything is perfect about the circumstance of this shot. Like the weather is a big part of it. If this was shot on a sunny day, it would look totally different. But that diffuse cloud that that makes everything look a little flat, it makes the fire really pop. If you gave $11 million to any Hollywood director and said, just <laughs> duplicate that scene, just film <laughs> that scene, that's all you have to do. I don't think I don't think they could do it for $11 million. Yeah. They really built like a real castle so that they could burn it down for this scene. I mean, that's how I feel about my romantic life. <laughs> I build real castles every time and then burn them down for that final scene. <laughs> real castles Damn, for your real friends, sham castles for your <laughs> sham friends. And all I'm doing is wandering around looking for a blade, but all my blades are broken. Hmm. You might want to take it easy with that face makeup, though, John. <laughs> so this begins uh, Hidetora's Goldilocksing from castle to castle, pretty much. Uh, he's a man without a home, and his grasp of sanity has totally slipped. Right. All uh, it's only Kiyoami uh, that becomes his his faithful companion, his caretaker. Yeah. Until the mysterious Tango arrives again, dressed as a hobo. Tango Unchained. That's right. Tango and Cash. <laughs> uh, that and movie then, on our list. That's a great movie. <laughs> and then they're, they're off on a, I mean, that is just a descent into hell. Like I was saying before, a two hour long death scene. Yeah. Before we get past this, there's a crucial moment in Hidetora's departure from the castle. It's Jiro and his lord that wander out behind him, and the lord is like, hey, you know, this is, he's the end boss. He's what we came here to do. Time to end this thing and, and like, take your place on the throne. Older brother's dead. It's your game now. And he takes a big swallow and can't do it. Can't do it. He watches dad wander off. Can't kill his dad. Yeah. It was another instance of a handler having a better idea than one of the brothers. It all could have ended there. It's so amazing like how much loss of life they are willing to unleash and then lose their nerve when it matters, you know. Right. Right. I mean, not that it doesn't matter when other people die, but like the I mean, have either of you guys ever killed your dad? No, you know? Well, see. It's hard. Yeah. It's harder than it looks. <laughs> Killing some other guys, sure, easy peasy. Sure, I, al think like? I always get too tired halfway through. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, those swords are heavy, and yeah. your your arms are thin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 uh. Is that what I sound like? 
<laughs> trying to lift your dad's sword. <laughs> mm. Yeah, big old sword. The key, I think, to the to the third act is that uh, Lady Kade gets her fingers around Jiro. Yeah, because Jiro goes to Castle Number One, where Kade is still the lady of the of the house, and she you know brings him into her romantic orbit and uh, basically persuades him that the way forward is that he's got to kill have his own wife sue killed and marry her instead she's gonna uh leave her eyebrows on his collar <laughs> yeah <laughs> she has get the- found out <laughs> i mean it's a it's a pretty impressive scene because it's the it's the moment where she I mean, up until that point, we understand that she, or that her character, is one that is using politics and manipulation and like social expectation to accomplish her will. But in this situation, she actually physically overpowers Jiro and holds him, holds a knife to his neck. The shots where she's swinging that knife around—it seems like she is really close to him, like yeah. for real, right? And really good at at handling that blade and you realize like oh wow this character is not just she is not above any amount of violence to accomplish her goal and it really and that's when you really feel like oh this is we're truly dealing with a crazy person like any amount of sex or violence like (laughs) because the scene ends with her licking the blood off his neck that she's extracted yeah that sex has got to be amazing Oh, she is fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah. But even though she announces in that scene her intentions, or I mean, she announces her motivations, right? Like, my family was killed in this castle. My mother committed suicide right there. I am not leaving this castle. So you're going to kill your wife and marry me because this is where I belong. Even though she's telegraphing her entire story to us, I don't think as a viewer, at least I still understood what her end game was. I accepted her description of what her end game was, which was to stay in this castle and to stay in power. I still didn't get because her, you know, her final scene, which is very close to the final scene of the film turns the whole movie on its ear. Right. And in this, in this moment, you're like, Oh, she's hungry. She's greedy. She's afraid. And she's, you know, she's manipulating everybody she can in order to protect herself and to stay on the throne. She seems like a wild card for so much of the movie. And it turns out she's kind of been pulling the strings the entire time. Yeah, she is the she's the ultimate manipulator who had in as her goal not to survive, but to to destroy the family and the empire. Like she has just as valid motivations as anybody in in this movie maybe and the, maybe the most valid right and and yet people with similar motivations are kept at a distance right like everyone should know her backstory and she's so close to the throne at all times like why wasn't this an expected outcome from anyone yeah she's just you know she became the wife of the eldest son it was a, a, a classic medieval move like yeah no one understood the depth of her Rage. The brothers are looking around at each other like, well, most people whose families we've killed have just sort of eaten our shit and been fine with it. This is really strange. Why is she trying to destroy us? Yeah. Yeah. 
Look at my neck. It's fucked up. Yeah, an incredibly powerful role and yeah. and a uh you know, and and maybe the person in the film that you despise the most until that until her final It seems justified, right? Where you're like, "Oh, dude, are you the hero of this movie?" <laughs> Big well, ups. Uh I'll ask you like, does that make her into the hero of the film? Does that does that justify her actions and like cuz she's she's anti-hero big time here but does she turn the corner into hero hero for for my money the fact that everyone in this movie is willing to is willing to lay waste to everyone else i mean you what you want is saburo to be the hero and saburo comes in in the in the the last act and you think ah saburo's here to straighten everything out and he and his hilarious uncle armies where those guys are just <laughs> yucking it up right until the end. You're like, now the movie's going to be fun. We're going to eliminate all these baddies. The red army is going to get squashed by the blue army. And uh, Hidatora says, all I want to do is just lay around and, and have fa- long father son conversations into the night. And you think this is, this is going to be fantastic. Hey, Saburo, are you still awake? <laughs> <laughs> it all comes unraveled. Saburo is killed pretty unceremoniously. Just catches a bullet in a in a ambush that we know he's been warned about, right? Right. And then the in the final scene, I mean, the army that rains down on Jiro, the Black Army, is one we've never seen before. I can't even connect it to which one of the dukes. Like where this black army, who they are, but yeah, they it's one are one of the gray beards that was up up on the mountain hunting the boars with them. But it, yeah, right. I guess it's the one that didn't get a daughter into into the mix with yeah, the maybe. whole marrying him off thing. He had the good sense to lay back in the cut and watch these brothers destroy themselves. And now he ends up I mean, whoever that uh, duke is ends up owning everything. He's he's the the proud owner of three ashen castles (laughs) (laughs) but so we have no idea who the victor is in this in this passion play from a historical standpoint 500 years later whoever that guy was probably has his name in lights but yeah is she the is kade the ultimate like hero of the movie i think i think i was i think i really rooted for her right there at the end where she was like, everything I planned has come to pass. Fuck you and yours. You guys all got what you deserve. I'm out. And I did it. Yeah, I did it. And here's my glorious death. Boy, her death is glorious. Holy shit. So was the sword filled with blood and her head? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, when... Was she under pressure? When Kurogane is just finally like, I no longer am waiting for... An, invitation here well kade and kuragane had been through some shit yeah they had up to that point so like he was he was just in dispensing that justice at the end but she gets her she gets her speech and Mm -hmm. you realize oh yeah i mean kuragane is not walking out of here either yeah like everybody dies so yeah she gets she, she gets to spray them all with blood on her way out which is more than most can say what do you think happened to Quentin Tarantino when he saw that moment? Uh, orgasm. <laughs> well, you see so much of of Kill Bill, yeah, taken directly from this movie. 
I didn't realize where Kill Bill was getting a lot of its imagery. I just assumed it was, um, I assumed where it came from, but I didn't realize like it was just taking lock, stock, and barrel from Ran. And I ran, I ran so far. Did you work on that earlier, Ben? Was that like something you had in the, you're just waiting? <laughs> waiting for somebody to say the name of the movie? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I read a little bit about the title. It's a, uh, it's a pretty complex etymology, and it has been variously translated as chaos, rebellion, or revolt, to mean disturbed or confused. Got a lot of different uh, ways of uh, ways of reading that, and I think they are all kind of valid. That explains the confusion people have when you reveal your your tattoo of that symbol on your lower back. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Chaos, revulsion, <Yeah>. revulsion. <laughs> the guy told me it meant tenacity. And, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. I was uh, I was uh, led down the primrose path. He thought you said tentacle. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys want to talk about that last image of the movie, the the blind man like dropping the image of the Buddha off the edge of the ruined castle? Did you take that to mean that like is this an anti-god image? Is this a is this about humans having forsaken the Buddha? I do not see a lot of faith in this movie. It does not seem like Kurosawa is saying that there's redemption in god or religion like i think the 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 reason it struck me so much is i was tr- thinking about like the way an american war film ends and to have have an image of like jesus dropped off a, a cliff like that at the end of an american war film would be so insanely provocative to an american audience wow i did not think of it that way and now i think that's engendered a lot more power in it well but you know buddha doesn't play the same role in the culture as Jesus does in this culture. I don't know. Did you see Martin Scorsese's movie about Buddha where he like flips over the money changers table and (laughs) like totally goes crazy on those guys? (laughs) The Buddha who fights back. (laughs) Don't want to mess with that Buddha. Last temptation of the Buddha. Yeah. You messed with the wrong Bodhisattva. (laughs) It was William Defoe playing Buddha. <laughs> He's just being typecast as deities. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is a provocation, but I guess Sue is the religious person in this movie. Her brother, the, the character that drops that. Um, yeah, that's just something image. she left with him. Right. He already had had said, you know, there's I, I tried to I tried to find solace in religion, but couldn't. My heart, my heart is so full of hate. I mean, imagine, yeah, right. I mean, we're left with the image of him, blind, alone, on a precipice, nearly falling off of it and dropping the the scroll. And Finn, you know, like thanks for the thanks for that last little bit of cheer. But like, <laughs> as the as the last survivor of the story, like, did he win? He's standing on top of the ashes of one of these castles. No, I don't think he won. I think the I think the idea is that three minutes later he falls off of that castle and dies. Yeah. Probably dies, probably breaks a leg and dies of starvation. Hidatora falls off the, the walls of a castle and survives. He lands in that soft sand. He jumped. 
He knew it. He flew. That's because he is a bird. Good stunt. <laughs> Good stunt by an old man. Oh, I thought you were talking about me being on this podcast with you guys. <laughs> it's a form of jumping off a cliff for you. It's a very good stunt. Yeah, you just better hope that there's as soft of sand at the bottom of this. It's just a pile of Casper mattresses down there. <laughs> well, uh, for every war film, it is my job to come up with a custom rating system based on uh, an object that catches my eye in the film. And in the film Ron, uh, this was an easy thing for me to create. There is pretty rugged scene three quarters of the way through where uh, Lady Kade is trying to make the case to uh, to Lord Kurogane that he's got to go kill Sue. Got to do it. And uh, while you're at it, bring her head back. Like, for proof. Salted. Yeah, you're gonna, <laughs> but here's the thing. You're going to want to salt that head. Salt it to preserve it because uh, it's summer. You don't want to, you don't want to bring back a, 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 leaky rag of uh full of head in it it's no good (laughs) salt it down so uh kurogani comes back he comes back with a head wrapped in rags and he's like see i did it and uh lady kade is like great let's check this thing out and like tears into it like it's a picnic basket like opens it up and what it reveals is a is a salted statue of a fox head and it it is like Kuragani making fun of her to oh, her face. Boy, it's it's the one scene right where somebody that isn't the fool, yeah, is just openly uh, sub- subversive. Absolutely, like Seditious. antagonistic, yeah. like really throwing it back in her face. And this, it explodes her. It it ignites the fuse that that ends up destroying everyone else in the film later on. Eventually. Sue does get killed and a real head is presented to her. I'm giving you guys the option. I'll let you guys decide whether or not you want to use statue fox heads or real Sue heads in your rating. <laughs> For me, oh, to rate Ron, this was almost like more of a feeling than a movie in its two hours and 40 odd minutes. It's paranoid and spiteful and nihilistic in ways that I really enjoyed it felt dangerous throughout it is beautiful to look at there are no heroes in this film on a rating of one to five salted sue heads the real deal (laughs) I think you gotta go with the real the real flesh and blood head because this film demands it there's a lot of flesh and blood in this film I think it's a great film I hadn't seen it in a long, long time, and I was glad to have reacquainted myself with it. Four salted heads. Man, well, I agree with everything you said, Adam, and I think I agree with your rating, but I'm going to bump it up to four salted heads plus one salted fox head just to give it a, give it oh, a yeah. full five. I think it's a, it's a masterpiece. It is one of the best films by one of the best directors, and it tells a, a rip-roaring story that um, I think improves on King Lear in a lot of ways. And uh, that's, you know, that's no easy feat, you know. Uh, those are big shoes to fill. And it's amazing. It's, it's a total an amazing accomplishment. 
Yeah, you're never going to pitch, I'm going to do something better than Shakespeare. <laughs> right. That's a bad pitch. <laughs> I love Ben. You know, Shakespeare, it's big shoes to fill. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> He's right up there with Tarantino. Go take a nap on your Casper. <laughs> well, watching this film is... Uh, is an is a real experience um and and it made me think several times about the nature of film as a artistic medium i know you guys are much better versed than i am in in things you know in the in the topic of film but this transcended in some ways like the the some of its parts watching it felt like something uh you know, like like uh, like an experience more akin to going to the theater, or going to like a major production. And I, although two hours and forty five minutes is an awful lot of time to commit to it, and I did take a a lengthy intermission of my own. I just had to go clear my head and have some popcorn. It's very hard to sit and and watch it straight through. But it also it, it also has the part of the reason that it's two hours and forty five minutes long is that it's a movie where when someone gets a letter, they sit and read it, and we watch them read a letter in the amount of time it takes to read a letter. I mean, people are people do a lot of thinking on screen where we're we are invited just to spend that time with them. It's not two and two hours and forty five minutes of action. And that too feels like a thing, maybe even missing from life, where you get to be patient with the expectation that there's the 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 payoff is worth it. So, I mean, I feel like this is a five salted suey head and four salted fox head film. Oh shit! What? No one's ever exceeded the five thing scale before. John just went all the way to nine. Boom. Because <laughs> I just can't find a flaw in the experience of watching it. Now, whether or not there's there are flaws in the movie, sure, there are flaws in it, and and even and the choice to have Hidetora be played so broadly and so theatric, so so out of a different tradition. It's an artistic choice that I kind of am like, well, what would it have been like if he had been played, you know, a little bit less like that? But that's like asking what would Lear be like if Lear wasn't dramatically overacting his insanity through the whole play? Um, So so but you have to be in Shakespeare's shoes to understand. Well, those are big shoes, right? Big clown shoes, those big, those famously big Shakespeare shoes. Yeah. Shakespeare walking around with that squirting flower and his giant shoes. What a weirdo. But in terms of like, do you watch this movie and what is the, is it important? Is it, is this an experience? Is this time you set aside to have watched this movie? It really is. And this is a movie I could, I could very much imagine watching again. And I really wish we'd seen it in Cinerama. And, and I hope one day that we, we will, when we finally have our friendly fire film fest. 
hey, can I get a print of this? We'll rent Cinerama, do a 70 millimeter. Fun. Arclight, reach out. (laughs) Come on. We have connections. I know Paul (laughs) Allen. (laughs) It this film was made in 1985. But I also feel like it could have been made in 1975 or 1995. Or 1959. Right? It, it, its aesthetic exists out of time. Yeah. It unfortunately doesn't feel like it could be made in 2018. Right. No, you would have, you would have CGI warriors sweeping over the hills like giant plagues. Well, like, like, think about the, the big army shots at the end of Mongol, like how how weak they are compared to this. Yeah. I mean, you can see where Mongol took from this movie too. There are quite a few thematic similarities and, and sets set pieces that uh, this is, this is an influential movie. And I didn't realize I was seeing things that were influenced by it. Yeah. It's like, it's like hearing the, uh, the R and B song that you've heard a breakbeat from in 10 hip hop songs. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like that. I know that breakbeat. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was actually in a song played by a human. (laughs) (laughs) Who's your guy, John? Kiyoami. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people that could be my guy in this movie. A lot of guys in the film. There are. The uh, kindly uncle, the, the hilarious Uncle Duke who just seems to be getting a real chuckle out of life. Uncle Rickles. <laughs> um, is the guy that I'm probably most like, uh, that I imagine would be, uh, like hopefully would be my character in a, in a set piece like this. Like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> wah, wah. But also like backed up with a pretty pretty sizable army. Yeah, not laughing then. No, with white with white flags too. That was a nice... That was another very pleasant sound in this film. Uh, the, the arrows flags. were a thing that, that stuck out to me sound-wise, but those rippling flags. That was a scene that kind of uh, that evoked uh, Zulu to me when they're up on the side and kind of communicating yeah. through through their song and their code down into the valley. But no, Kiwami is just like such a, was such a fascinating character. And, and um, you know, I think I fell in love with the actor and really wish in my own life that I had a fool (laughs) who cared that much about me, but also could speak that kind of truth to power. And yeah, Ben and I have each other. I know. Right. (laughs) Trying to think about who you might have. Kiwami is like strong, but also, you know, gentle and, and has to, I mean, and I feel like the character is maybe more akin to your or Ben's nature in the sense that, you know, you're just looking for a patron <laughs> to make you safe. That's not really me. I'm more of the, I'm more of the patron. It ain't me, babe. <laughs> but, but that was the, that was the, uh, I, I could not get enough of uh, Kiyoami on the screen. Enough that I spent like, two hours looking at pictures of her afterwards <laughs> and saved a lot into a, fo- into a folder. <laughs> Further research required. Mm-hmm. What about you, Adam? Uh, my guy's going to be Tango. I le- really liked from the jump how willing he was to insert himself into 
into a problem, like he couldn't help himself. He couldn't help but getting himself banished. He would have been fine if he just shut up, but he didn't have the discipline to do that. But the thing I really liked about him was like he wasn't going to let that stop him. He has a bag full of fake mustaches and costumes. He <laughs> is going to continue his mission of uh, of protecting Hidetora because uh, that's his job. It's his duty. And I uh, I dug that about him too. Like He was on screen a lot less than I would have preferred. He has his own movie, I feel like. The adventures that he has concurrently with this film right. are stories that I would like to see. Because he just pops up from time to time in uh, in interesting moments. I can't wait for Disney to buy this franchise and release <laughs> Tango, a Rand story. Yeah, yeah, would see. So, uh, so Tango is my guy. What about you, Ben? Uh, I'm giving it to Kurogane uh, for the for the joke head. Uh, he's given a a task that is just like, you know, he's he's like, hey, go murder my wife. And bring her head back so that my new wife can see it is basically the order he gets. And uh, he does something that I do an awful lot, which is to try to break the tension of a very awkward disagreement with humor. Uh, It doesn't go great for him, but... uh, I thought you were going to say you break the tension with head. (laughs) Uh, But I I admired the attempt and I... uh, I, I felt some uh, some similarity to, to him in that moment. It's um, such a great scene. Yeah, it. Uh, you, you know, he really plays it straight when he first comes in with that thing. You totally believe you're about to see a head, and uh, yeah, and uh, you don't have any reason to believe otherwise. He presses his bet four times in that scene. Yeah, he yeah. He not only walks in there with the fake head, but when the when the fake head is discovered, he goes on this tangent about how uh, his new wife is actually a fox, and foxes are all around us, and they're meddling in our affairs, like it, right in her face. Yeah, yeah. He is waiting for Jiro to. That's right. Be be the boss, which Jiro yeah. G- theoretically see. is, but in in practic in in reality is not. You know. Well, and he knows Jiro isn't. Yeah. Or so, else he wouldn't do. He wouldn't have done it. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. It's it's, it's a, just a fascinating scene, and uh, for that reason, Kurogane is my guy. Good guys. You all know, around. It, it's funny because. Oftentimes, or at least the initial idea of who's your guy was to pick some, like, some dork out of the background, who <laughs> who had a, you know, who had a funny nose or whatever. And that's my kind movie, of dork. In this movie, we picked three leading characters, and it's it's strange because despite a a, a cast of fifteen hundred extras, there really weren't a ton of people to choose from from the background that had little little moments all their own when people were dying they were dying in waves not very many not very many supporting actors got the, got little moments i think the the spirit of who who's your guy began as a way to as a way to experience something that is impossible for us to understand like like having never been to war or inside war who's your proxy for what that experience is like, who best represents your sensibilities. 
I think was a big part of the guy selection from the start. We did pivot that into some fun areas, though, as a way to call attention to some minor characters and, and elements that that uh, were important that wouldn't otherwise get attention in the rest of the show. Right. So I think it can work in all ways. Your guy is your guy. You use whatever criterion you want, John. Uh, there need to be rules. <laughs> and this is I don't, not numb. I, this is bowling. I don't subscribe to the whole... Punk rock is whatever you want it to be, man. It's like, no, it's a thing. God, I do it's, not want to get you started on punk rock. It's John. actually a thing. I don't want any of that punk rock backlash to splash <laughs> over onto us. <laughs> Let's pick a new movie. What's Let's happening uh, next time on okay, Friendly Fire? Okay, next time so, on Friendly uh, Fire. World War II is back on the menu, boys. All right, let's get get our 100-sided die. I realize that in order to properly roll the 100-sided die, I need a die tray. Wow, look Uh, at you. You have a special rolling plate. I do a rolling plate. Looks like something that you roll and cut a lot of things on. Mm -hmm. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, look, Ben. How did you guys get here? Well, we had such a fun time reviewing the film Ron, <laughs> and we have some, some news about next week's episode. It will not be randomly selected like normal. You'll, you see that, uh, that uh, this year of our Lord, 2018, on November 11th of this year, we are uh, remembrancing the 100th anniversary of the armistice at the end of World War I. Yeah, so we've we figured we've got uh, our next episode comes out November 9th of twenty eighteen, and that's so darn close to uh, that date that we felt like it would be a, a real shame not to do something about World War One. So, Adam, what movie will we be reviewing next week? Uh, we will be reviewing the nineteen thirty classic All Quiet on the Western Front. That's right. And one of the classics of war cinema. Here we are at the font. <laughs> so that'll be next week. Uh, we uh, we just finished recording that review, and it's a doozy. I can't recommend it more highly. Uh, and I also can't recommend the film more highly. So go, uh, go check out the film, and then uh, meet us back here next week in your podcast app. And we will be reviewing All Quiet on the Western Front. And that's the 1930s version, not the TV movie from the 70s. Although, if you want to watch the TV movie from the 70s, it stars John Boy from the Waltons <laughs> and Ernest Borgnine. So well, it's, it's Academy Award-winning Ernest Borgnine. That's right. Wow. But, but we're watching the 1930, not 1930s, but 1930 version of All Quiet on the Western Front in commemoration of the... 100th anniversary of the end of World War One. We will also commemorate uh, the 100 year anniversary with a sheet cake mm-hmm. that has a bunch of trenches in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those trenches That's made just where my John finger. dug it out with his <laughs> finger. <laughs> For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast that's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmer. 
If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to join in the discussion, we've got a great Facebook discussion group and a subreddit. And make sure that when you're using social media to use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.